What might it look like to give your all for Christ? What might God require of you to give your all for Christ? We're going to look at the husband and wife couple that Paul sends these greetings to in uh, verses 3 and 4 of Romans 16. He similarly includes them in his greetings at the end of 1 Corinthians and at the end of 2 Timothy. Although at the end of 1 Corinthians, uh, he's actually sending his greeting, uh, their greetings with his own to the church in Corinth because Priscilla and Aquila are with him in Ephesus from where he wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, so mostly he's sending his greetings to them, but on that occasion he sends theirs, their greetings with his own. And this couple would play a huge part in Paul's life and ministry. And of all the people to whom Paul sends greetings in this final chapter in his letter to the Romans, we know far more about Priscilla and Aquila than we do about anybody else. Now, when we look at biblical examples, uh, we do need to be careful not to jump to the conclusion uh, that I am suggesting that you have to copy every aspect of their lives, that unless you are prepared to do exactly what they did, then somehow you are a second-rate Christian. No, not at all. But what all of us must do is look to see uh, uh, the truths and the principles which they permit themselves to be governed by and look at the degree of commitment that they had which drove their lives forward and then seek to apply those same things in my life, in your life, in your situation, in your circumstances, where God has placed you and with the gifts and the graces that God has given you. Or may we have hearts that are ready to receive the promptings that the Lord might stir up in us through his word and by his spirit in order that every single one of us might live wholeheartedly in the service of Christ. So let's take a look at Aquila and Priscilla this evening. Well, we read from Acts chapter 18 because that is where they're introduced to us for the very first time when Paul meets them in the city of Corinth as he's on his second missionary journey. We read that Aquila is a Jew who originally comes from Pontus. Now, where's Pontus? Well, if you look at a map of modern-day Turkey, Pontus is on the far northeast coast on the Black Sea. Uh, back then, that whole area, uh, all of modern-day Turkey, was known as the Roman province of Asia Minor. And Pontus was this smaller coastal region within it, up in the northeast. That's where Aquila came from. And we read that he and his wife uh, arrived in Corinth because in Rome, the Emperor Claudius had exiled all of the Jews from the country. And that's where they had been. And so they find themselves in Corinth and the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke, he explains the connection that very quickly became established between Paul and this married couple. As 
uh, he entered their home and they worked together as tent makers. And uh, the inference is that Aquila and Priscilla are already believers at this point. Uh, partway through uh, Acts chapter 18, we read that, I think it's verse 11, where Paul, uh, Luke records for us that Paul would actually spend 18 months in Corinth uh, with Aquila and Priscilla playing a very, a very significant part in his establishing the church there in Corinth. And when Paul eventually left for Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla went with him. It was necessary for Paul to continue on to Jerusalem, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and that's where they would meet Apollos as he arrives in Ephesus, and they take him under their wing and into their home. And Apollos would establish himself as one of the leading teachers and preachers in the New Testament church. He's one of the men mentioned by Paul in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And now Paul is sending them his greetings as he, arri as he writes to the church in Rome. Uh, it's not recorded for us, but at some point they have returned to the Roman capital and they've picked up with the church there. So, so what are the specific things that we can learn from this godly Christian couple and how can they be both a challenge and an encouragement for all of us? Well, I want to speak about them under three headings. And here's the first. Commitment to Christ and the gospel. Commitment to Christ and the gospel. So we saw at the beginning of uh, Acts 18, we have that scene set before us as Paul and uh, Aquila and Priscilla uh, strike up this really close bond. Uh, they have in common their professional trade, all of them are tent makers, and so Paul takes up residence with them, and they work together in Corinth for over a year. But don't miss the reason that they're in Corinth. Persecution has forced them out of Rome. They've been forced to leave their home. But notice that they don't allow that trial to derail them. They have not lost hearts. They have not lost faith. They're not down in the doldrums because the world is making life difficult for them. The world will frequently make life difficult for Christians because the world loves darkness rather than light. But when they meet up with no less than the Apostle Paul in Corinth, they are more than ready to continue putting their shoulder to the plough and to be part of his evangelistic work in the city. During this time, Paul is, is preaching away at every opportunity and a church is soon established in the city. Now, what their precise role was in the church, if they had one, well, we don't know, we're not told that kind of detail, uh, to what degree they were involved in gospel work in the city with Paul. Well, we're left to guess. But what we do know is that when, after 18 months, Paul leaves Corinth, he chooses to take them with him. They were his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, and we're going to notice that little phrase a lot in this closing chapter, either in Christ or in the Lord. Paul is going to use that phrase repeatedly about all of these different people that he mentions. These are people in this chapter who would never have had any connection together whatsoever, but now they have the closest and this most special bond of all because they are all in Christ. He is that which binds them together. And we are bound not just to one another, we are bound even to them, 2,000 years later. Uh, there's no way that all of those who are members of the church in Rome, there's no way that all of us who are gathered here this evening uh, would have perhaps just find ourselves uh, holding a conference and all meeting up together. And Paul wants to stress this vital point. If you've been called to faith in Christ Jesus, then he, Christ, becomes the glue which holds you all together within the church. It isn't just human camaraderie, as many kinds of groups enjoy. You can go to all kinds of clubs and groups and meeting places and feel a degree of oneness and togetherness with people. Now, there is that aspect in the church, but there's much more to it than that. Our unity as the Lord's people is not something that we generate amongst ourselves by ourselves. It's not simply by us having something in common like it is for many others. There is something outside of ourselves which binds us together in the church. It's because there is another who has embraced each one of us and brought us together. We are in Christ. It isn't Paul and Aquila and Priscilla forming their own little club. It's Christ who has first of all drawn them to himself, and now Christ has brought them together. And Christ has placed them where they are in Corinth to serve him in a particular way. This in Christ Jesus lies at the very heart of it. And this has to be the uppermost thing for every local church, that we're in Christ. It's not about getting behind individuals or personalities. It's about following and serving Christ because we're in him together. And I also just want to say this, and, and this is aimed particularly at those who at the moment are single, but who do hope one day to be married. This is particularly aimed towards you. Can you imagine God using a married couple like this if only one of them was a believer? Now, that is not in any way to despise any Christian who may be married to an unbeliever. Not for a moment. But for those of you who are single, let's just state the obvious point that for Aquila and Priscilla to have been able to serve the way they did, for them to have been used by God the way they were, both of them must be believers. 
And if there's a man here who currently is single, and you desire to be an Aquila, well, you need to marry a Priscilla. And for the ladies, if you will be a Priscilla, you need to marry an Aquila so that together you may serve the Lord. And clearly, this godly Christian couple made a big impression upon Paul and upon the churches. And he considered them to be eminently useful and trustworthy to work alongside him, which is why he chose to take them to Ephesus. They had proven themselves to him during that time. And that's a really helpful point as well. To be proven, trustworthy, useful. There are times in the Bible when we have to admit God makes some extraordinary choices as to the people he's going to use in certain times and in certain places and for certain purposes. Moses had no track record whatsoever for the work that God would call him to do. Neither did a man like Gideon and so many others who we can call to mind. Yet although God does sometimes choose to work like that, uh, we discover that in the New Testament, when it comes to churches appointing people in the church, uh, we are urged not to appoint a novice, but to, to use people who have a good degree of godly knowledge and wisdom, who have a proven character as a Christian. Those who would serve as elders and deacons are an obvious example to point to in the things that Paul says uh, in Timothy and Titus. It was exactly the same for the men who were shortlisted to replace Judas Iscariot, to make the apostles back up from 11 to 12. Saul of Tarsus, after his conversion, he would disappear into almost obscurity for well over a decade before he began a really acknowledged public ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. And Aquila and Priscilla, they, they've spent more than a year living alongside, working alongside, serving in the church alongside Paul and learning, learning, learning from probably the best preacher and teacher and evangelist that this world has ever known. And now they're very well equipped for what God would have them do as Paul invites them to accompany him to Ephesus. And they're ready and they're willing to go. And when he says that... He, he thinks it's best that they remain in Ephesus while he moved on. They were ready and willing to stay. So we see on one occasion, they're ready and willing to go. And then on another occasion, they're ready and willing to stay. Because there are some who are called to go there are others who are called to stay. For some, it's go and serve over there. For others, 
it's stay and serve right here. But whichever it is, you need to be someone who's ready to serve. As Aquila and Priscilla are. They're not just hangers-on in the church. They didn't just want the recognition of being part of Paul's inner circle. They weren't, they weren't in this for the prestige of being part of this elite team, as some may have considered them as they worked alongside the Apostle Paul. No, for them, this was simply a deep commitment to Christ and a deep commitment to the gospel. And we're going to see some evidence of that in a moment. And they were clearly ready to be at God's disposal wherever he would have them be. Paul doesn't provide the details, but he, we're told, aren't we, in verse 4 there, that such is their commitment to Christ. Such is their commitment to the gospel that on one occasion they actually risked their lives. They actually made themselves extremely vulnerable so that they actually may have lost their own lives simply in order to help Paul. Many have wondered if it was maybe one of those occasions when Paul faced such fierce opposition after preaching the gospel that men sought to kill him. We sometimes forget that the apostle experienced that kind of opposition sometimes. And it was on an occasion like that, perhaps, that Aquila and Priscilla were, were quite ready to stand up and be counted alongside him. And they were quite, quite ready to, to stand in the midst of that uh, raging uh, crowd who would kill Paul uh, and go and stand with him and rescue him and bring him to safety. Uh, maybe that's what it was. Uh, but Paul acknowledges that they, they were ready to lay down their life for me. So we see in them this commitment to Christ and to the gospel. And then secondly, we see in this couple commitment to Christ and the truth. So Acts 18 tells us that Paul moves on from Ephesus, leaving Aquila and Priscilla behind, and they remain there. And not long after that, we don't know the precise time scale because we're not told, but towards the end of Acts chapter 18, this man Apollos arrives from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, Alexandria in those days was a city of great learning. It was a city of great literature. It's a city that was known to have for its day a vast library, one of the foremost in ancient times. And Apollos is a Jew. His knowledge of the Old Testament is to die for, as are his skills as a public speaker. A very promising combination. And I'm sure Priscilla and Aquila were greatly encouraged the first time they met him and heard him. But there is just one problem. He knows all about the ministry of John the Baptist. So he knows about the need to repent of your sins and be baptized. And he has. And he knows some things of the Lord, we're told. But there are certain things relating to Christ and the gospel. And there are certain things relating to the realities of being baptized as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that Apollos has never been taught. And he's ignorant of these things. So it's not that he's preaching falsehood. He isn't. 
Luke confirms there in verse 25 of Acts 18 that Paulus was handling the Word of God faithfully. Now, the problem with the message that Apollos is preaching is that there are certain truths that it lacks. It's not a false message that he's preaching, but it is an incomplete message that he's preaching. And so well taught by Paul are Aquila and Priscilla that as soon as they hear Apollos preach, well, they recognize the great potential, but it's immediately obvious that there are certain things lacking despite his great skill in public speaking. Because no level of skill in the preacher can make up for a lack of truth in the message. If there are truths missing, it doesn't matter how good a speaker you are. It doesn't matter how great a preacher you are. If there are truths missing from the message, then it is not what it should be, and it never can be. And Aquila and Priscilla understand this. So they do exactly the right thing. The first thing, they take him to one side. They don't in any way make a public spectacle of him. They quietly take him to one side, and they teach him. And he is teachable. And then in verses 27 and 28 of Acts 18, we see the fruits of their labor with him. The things they've taught him, what difference does it make? Well, we read of him showing the Jews from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and doing it with great boldness. That's it, Apollos. That's what now makes him a great preacher as opposed to just being a great speaker. Now he's a preacher. Now his whole focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes him a good preacher now. And so powerful is his preaching, such is his reputation as a preacher, that in 1 Corinthians, Paul names him, Apollos, alongside himself, Peter, and Christ. That's quite some affirmation of this man's role within the church. And where has that come from? Who has equipped this great preacher? Priscilla and Aquila. That's what God has used them for in that man's life. Great preaching reveals Christ. Great preaching points people to Christ. Such great teachers need to be well taught. They need to be grounded in this truth. And Priscilla and Aquila have done just that with Apollos. And this demonstrates so much about these two. It provides such an important insight as to the spiritual and doctrinal caliber of this couple. No wonder Paul works so much with them. No wonder what it is that we're going to be considering in our third and final point in just a moment. They are thoroughly grounded in Christ. They're thoroughly committed to Christ and to the truth of the gospel. I'm convinced that they had a really firm grasp on all of the truths that Paul has taken us through in this letter. And so does Apollos, now that he's been taught by them. And here is the pattern for the Christian church through all of the centuries. 
It's like what Paul would say to Timothy. You need to find faithful men that you can pass on this message to, that they may teach others also. And it goes on and on and on in the church. And, and Paul, uh, Aquila and Priscilla have been part of this very process in the New Testament church. And because of that, they stand ready to correct anything which in any way could misrepresent Christ. They stand ready to correct anything that could misrepresent the gospel that they love so much. And thirdly, because of all this, they have this commitment to Christ and his church because they understand the place of the church in God's purposes as well. So Paul states, actually, that these greetings for Aquila and Priscilla back in Romans, they don't just come from him. They come from all the Gentile churches. It's been Gentile churches that this couple have been involved with. All that makes sense. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's been going to Gentile places, and they've been with him in those places. So all the churches that they've had contact with have been predominantly Gentile churches, even though Aquila, at least, presumably Priscilla as well, is a Jew, like Paul. It's not explicitly stated, but it's probably the case that Priscilla and Aquila have actually visited quite a few churches on their travels between Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, and who knows where else they may have been, with or without Paul. And such has been their impact upon these churches that all the churches wish to be remembered to them. And we also read of them hosting a church in their own home. In 1 Corinthians, Paul sends greetings from Aquila and Priscilla with the church that is in their house. That's when they were in Ephesus. Then here in Romans, in uh, chapter 16, at the beginning of verse 5, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So this seems to be something of a pattern also with Aquila and Priscilla, that the Lord's people are meeting in their home. Now there's actually quite a lot of speculation as to the exact size and structure of churches in the New Testament. The exception being the church in Jerusalem, because we're actually told about the church in Jerusalem, and we have a good idea as to what they did. Of course, the Jerusalem church was many thousands strong. Uh, we know that they met all together in one of the very large courtyards which formed part of the temple precinct in Jerusalem, but then they also met in each other's homes. And in a city like Jerusalem, if you've ever visited the city or seen pictures of it and, and seen how in the, the original old city, it's very narrow streets, um, it's a very enclosed place, uh, meeting in each other's homes and meeting in the open precinct where the temple is, that's probably the only two practical options that they have. And it was probably much more because of necessity than design intentionally that drove them to meet like that. That's what they had available, so that's what they used. We can all fit in, a, in the temple precinct in a huge group, so let's go there. 
And then the only other place we have is our own homes. So let's meet there. Well, elsewhere, as we read through the New Testament, we've no idea how big or small the churches were. Let's take the church in Rome as, as an example. Uh, we read of the church that meets in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. Was it all the church? Or was it just part of the church? We don't know. Was it quite a small church that it would easily fit inside someone's home? Or did Aquila and Priscilla own a huge home that could accommodate hundreds of people? We just don't know. Sometimes it's assumed today that if they met in a home, all the members must be very local to that home. But that's entirely speculation, because the Bible doesn't tell us. The truth is, aside from the need to appoint elders and deacons in a church and having that form of structure, aside from uh, what we read in Acts, that they, they met together regularly for the Word and for prayer and for uh, sharing the Lord's Supper together, apart from those kinds of structures that the New Testament gives us, it's largely silent on other issues. And I think, I think that's largely because it's not that side of things is not so important. We're afforded quite a lot of flexibility according to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. What we can be very sure of is that whatever is the size or the structure being part of a local church, meeting as a local church, is the clear biblical pattern. And that ought to be the, the big thing that takes our attention and is clear in our own minds. And Aquila and Priscilla were very obviously totally committed to Christ's church because they were more than happy to move around from place to place in order to serve the church. They were more than happy to open up their home in order that believers could meet with them and be there to do what churches need to do to use the means of grace that God has given us for preaching, for prayer, for the breaking of bread. And also, let me say this, you might think, you might think that there, there are a lot of things in our own country today which stand in opposition to the Christian faith. And you might think that there are a lot of things in our own country today uh, which stand in opposition against Christian churches. Try living as a Christian in first century Rome. It was a cesspit of iniquity and of open, flagrant sexual immorality and pagan idolatry and at various times inflicted abhorrent, barbaric, physical cruelty and death upon Christians. Being a Christian has never been a walk in the park. And the kind of opposition that comes against the Lord's people has been there from day one. Christ was crucified by religious people. If you're someone who looks around the world today thinking it's never been this bad before for Christians, well, I'm afraid you're simply making evident your ignorance of history. It's always been bad for Christians. Always. You lived in a, as a Christian 
in Rome, you knew you were different. And here in pagan Rome, Priscilla and Aquila are standing firm and welcoming the church into their home so that together they might stand firm in Christ, so that together they might worship Christ, so that together they might learn of Christ, so that together they might might proclaim Christ in their city, whatever the cost. And those of you who know the history will know that one particular emperor, Nero, when he came to the throne in Rome, you know what that cost the Lord's people. We are a million miles away from that kind of persecution here, so far. What does it look like to give your all for Christ? What might it require of you to give your all for Christ? Well, you certainly don't do it by living as a Christian in your own little bubble of isolation. It requires total commitment to Christ and to his gospel. Commitment to Christ and his truth, the truth of his word. Commitment to Christ and his church as part of his church. Whatever Christ may ask of you, whatever the cost may be, wherever that may take you, or wherever at home that may leave you. Well, you could do worse, and so could I, than to ask the Lord to show you what you can learn from this godly couple, to see what it means to give all for Christ. Well, may he grant us hearts that are willing to do that, that we in our day, in our place, in our time, might be used of him to make Christ known and to build Christ's church.